Let me invite you now to grab a Bible and open it to the book of Jeremiah, and, um, and I'll read from that in just a moment. After one quick announcement, um, guys, this Wednesday, of course, we're closed. Uh, you will probably be up to your elbows in food preparation or making reservations at the Cracker Barrel or whatever. Um, but the next Wednesday night, which is the 28th, we have a congregational meeting. You know, we only have pretty much one of those a year, and uh, here at Gracie Van, the elders are elected by the congregation. They're nominated and elected by the congregation. No way else. I don't appoint them. I don't even nominate nor vote. But you do. And there are 15 names of 15 men who have been nominated by you. We have a rotating eldership. As you know, we have 15 elders, five, they serve three years, and five rotate off every year. And so we have five vacancies every year. We have five vacancies this year. And so on the 28th, you will select five men from that list to fill those vacancies. Folks, I I don't know what you have uh, planned, but cancel it. And be here on the 28th and and vote uh, for your leadership, the men that make the decisions about how this place goes. This is an elder-run church. It's not a benevolent dictatorship. It's an elder-run church. Now, I hope you'll take that seriously. I'll say this. I shouldn't say this. I was criticized last year for saying it, and I probably shouldn't say it again, but I will. Um, If you must, I mean, if it is urgent that you see the next episode of the Big Bang Theory, um, come and vote, let the meeting conclude, and you can get home. I hope you won't do that because we're going we're gonna to have a little time around the word, and I hope you'll stay. But if you must, I mean, you can't stand the notion. I think that's why we have DVRs, but <clears throat> if you can't stand the notion of missing something on that wonderful instrument called a television, go home. But um, come vote. It's, um, it's something that is important, important to you, and I, I hope you'll take it seriously. On the 28th, 6.30, hope to see you then. Now, open your Bibles, let's continue our study of the book of Jeremiah. Um, the slog begins. Um, I, 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 would, I really ought to read the whole 37 verses of this chapter. I'm not because I risk boring you and, and losing you, so I won't. But let, let me make this suggestion. After you've heard what I have to say about <clears throat> explaining this chapter, go home and read it um, this afternoon, the whole thing. And I think you'll see what sense it makes. I hope you will. I hope you'll be able to. And so many times, I, I think the, particularly the Old Testament is mysterious to us. This is not mysterious. And, and I hope you'll see that as we, as we work through it. So let me read to you um, my privilege to do so, 13 verses of that which is authored and inspired by God himself. It reads like this, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown, 
Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness and a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that none passes through where no man dwells? I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, let's, uh, let's start with a quick bit of review just so that we can get our bearings as to where we are in the unfolding of this book, this prophetic book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah started his prophetic career in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. Now, you may recall, uh, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that Josiah took over as king of Israel when he was eight years old. So if Jeremiah showed up at the 13th year, that means that the king was about 21 years old when Jeremiah showed up on the scene. The first few years of Jeremiah's work as a prophet to Israel... Uh, roughly covering chapters 2 through 12, were, were years that were experienced in comparative peace. Um, they occurred in the midst of a revival that took place in Israel after Josiah the king had, um, had made it possible for the temple to be refurbished. Do you remember? The temple had fallen into disrepair and Josiah takes over And he requires or commands that the temple be refurbished. And in that construction project, in the midst of that construction project, the word of God is found. I don't know how you lose it, but they they lost it. The word of God is found by a man by the name of Hilkiah, who was possibly Jeremiah's father or perhaps even his grandfather. But chapters 2 through 5, generally speaking, 
um, are discussing the five years before the Bible was found. And chapters 7 through 12 are discussing the five years after the Bible was found. Now, that's where we are. Got it? Um, In terms of inserting yourself back into this book, that's generally speaking where we are. Now, guys, one of the, um, the briefest and most powerful novels in English literature, in my opinion, is Nathaniel's, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Did you ever read that? Um, you, you remember the book? It, um, the heroine is a woman by the name of Hester Prynne. And Hester Prynne is caught in adultery. She has a baby out of wedlock. And she is by the city court, the city fathers, required to wear a scarlet letter A on the front of her dress. She moves about the city with a scarlet letter A, which stands for adultery. She's an adulteress. She's committed adultery. And then as the book, towards the end of the book, it is discovered that the father of the child is the local pastor. Remember that. Now, why do I mention that book with that subject at this place in our study of the book of Jeremiah? Well, first of all, you might know this already, but the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, often compares God's people to adulterers. Did you know that? Old, Old Testament, New Testament. James 4, chapter 4 says, James 4, 4 says, you adulterous generation. Um, the people of God are often charged with being guilty of spiritual infidelity or adultery. How? How do they do that? How, we're going to see that. But how do they become spiritually adulterous. Well, there's a couple of ways that you could answer that. But the, but the one way that I think our text wants you to see it is something that's found in verse 2. Did you notice it? Did you notice that God calls Israel his bride? God considers himself married to his people. You know, guys, um, one of the things that I love to say in my wedding ceremonies, and uh, I said it yesterday or last night. I did a wedding last night. Uh, But one of the things I love to say in my weddings is this. I I love to talk about the the numerous metaphors that are used in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that are are designed to, to explain the, um, the relationship that God has with his people. There's the metaphor of shepherd sheep. You know, we're the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. Um, there's the metaphor of king and subject. God's the king, we're the subjects. But the metaphor that for me is the most profound and the most communicative is the metaphor of the, the bride and the bridegroom. That the church is the earthly bride who awaits the return of her heavenly 
bridegroom. Because in that metaphor, guys, there are things being said, things being communicated like security, intimacy, permanence. Now, with that in the backdrop of your minds, that's what God refers to or the text refers to in the first three verses. He is describing those blissful days of marriage early on. And then he comes to verse four. And he issues a summons. He calls Israel into court, a divorce court. And he brings a prophetic lawsuit Charges are brought. Charges of spiritual infidelity. Look at them with me. Look at verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me? What complaints could you possibly have against me? I was no abusive husband. Verse 6. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? I did not desert you. You will never be able to charge me with being a deserter or desertion. Verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land and you defiled it. I brought you into this beautiful new home. And what did you do with our home? You defiled it. And then verse 8, those who handle the law, these people are supposed to know me, but they don't. And then in verses 10 through 12, he, um, particularly verse 11, he says in absolute wonderment, has a nation ever changed its gods? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. No nation would do something like that. And then he says, but you have. You took your faithful husband and you traded him in on one so that you could commit your adultery. And then he goes over in verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? You swapped me in for an idol because I was of less value to you than costume jewelry. And by the way, this is no momentary lapse, verse 32, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. This was not some momentary lapse where like Exodus 32 in the golden cab. No, no, it wasn't like that. This was a designed, it was a decided, this was a determined pursuit of someone else. And then he comes to the end of his case. And he gives us in verse 13 a summary statement, his closing argument. He says that Israel has committed two evils. But before he mentions those, he, he says in verse 12, this is incredible. 
He looks at the heavens and he says, be appalled, O heavens. Because what I'm about to tell you is unthinkable. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, O heavens. Because my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me. And second, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. They, um, they turned their back on a fountain of living water. And they chose rather to have cistern water. Runoff rainwater that they collected in their own cistern. Filthy water that uh, brings all kinds of bugs and filth into the cistern. And, and, and rodents fall into those things and die and rot. But instead of the fountain of living water, they turned their back on that and they chose this. Be appalled. Who would ever do something like that? To get to your false God, you first forsook the real God. You exchanged a faithful husband for a scoundrel. Not only does he charge them with spiritual infidelity, ladies and gentlemen, he also charges them with madness. Look at verse 24. He likens them to a donkey in heat. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. It's an untamable madness for them to trade in me, says God, for that. We despise the bounty of God and we choose rather the bankruptcy of Baal. None but the insane would do something like that. Forsaking the real for the imaginary. To choose the filthy over the clean. And the worst of it all, in verse 13, your cisterns that you, dug, that you dug for yourselves. They have holes in the bottom. They leak. And when you go to those cisterns that you dug to slake your thirst, 
There's nothing there. No water. Apart from this faithful God, you are doomed to a lifetime of disappointment. It's like the prodigal son who swapped in his father and his home for the pigsty. We despise the bounty and we choose the bankruptcy. We prefer bankruptcy over bounty. Who does that? It's madness. And then the life begins to unravel. Why? Look at verse 17. He says, have you not brought this upon yourself? You forsook God. You chose to worship something else that is not real, that is not there. You traded in the real God for something that is not a God. And that, my friend, is what one calls self-inflicted wounds. You forsook. You chose. And now you're living with the consequences of self-inflicted wounds. And in, in, in this story that's contained in the book of Jeremiah, it's Israel's story. We also see in these verses in chapter 2 that they turn to Egypt for help. It's interesting in verse 16 they mention two Egyptian cities and one of them is Memphis. I think you already know that Memphis was named after Egyptian city. They turned to Egypt. But we're also told in verse 18 that they turned to Assyria. But then we're told in verse 36, how much you go, you, how much you go about changing your way, you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. We think, well, it's not going so well. You know, I went back to the cistern that I dug and there's no water in there. So I, I know, I know God doesn't have any solutions for me. So I'll turn to Egypt or Assyria. They'll help me. They'll help us. And they turned on me. The place that I looked to for help. They turned on me. They always will. And in this you see the heartbreak of God. Not to mention the heartbreak of the messenger, Jeremiah. The weeping prophet. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I've, I've been a pastor for 
46 years. And I have watched as people dig their own cisterns and choose their own solutions. They turn to alcohol or, or drugs or another woman or partying or money. And they all turn on you, don't they? Those things that I thought would, would be solutions like pot and they turn out to be nothing but gateways to chaos. Folks, do you see how timely is this book? How timely is this message? Oh, in our day, the choices may differ, but the outcome, the outcome is the same. The same dreadful outcome summarized in two words. No water. And I am so thirsty. And none of my solutions, none of them have worked. They've even turned on me. And my life pure chaos. Folks, here, here is where words like madness and insanity are the only words that I have available to me to describe what is taking place all around us. Whenever you find a people who discard this God for one of their own choosing, then what's left is a circumstance where I'm looking to have something to drink and I only find... No water. And interesting, I guess this is interesting. It's tragic, I, I guess. But it's not due to ignorance as if they don't know about this God. Oh, no, no. It's, it's not that they don't know about this God, but precisely the opposite. They know about him. But they just don't like him. They can't stand the idea that he's in charge. 
then I'm accountable to him. And I'm called to submit to him. Oh, how utterly distasteful such a notion is. You know, there's a, there's a, a scene in the life of Jesus Christ related in John 6. If you want to spend a whole day studying a chapter, study John 6. There's much, it's a long chapter, 71 verses. But when you come to verse 66, after he has taught all of these hard truths, it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Oh, I used to walk with him when I was in high school. But then I went to college. And it wasn't because I didn't understand him. It was because I did understand him. And I wanted nothing to do with him. Just like Israel. just like some of your sons and daughters. Or perhaps just like you. Why do I say all this? Because I hate you? Quite to the contrary. What I hate is watching you self-destruct. Watching the thirsty go to the cisterns that they themselves have hewn. Only to find no water. Why has any nation, why has any people, why has any person which has ever seen the glory of this God, why is a country like the United States of America, why have we walked away? It's not because we didn't understand. It's because we did understand. But not why has any country, why has any person Oh, you thought you knew better. But now you're disillusioned. You walked away not because you didn't see righteousness in Jesus Christ, but because you did see righteousness in Jesus Christ. And it was a righteousness that threatened my own wanting to run my own life without the interference of some holy God and his law. And so they left. And so have some of you. 
And if not you, then you know of those who have done exactly what Israel did in Jeremiah 2.13. And now they are reaping the chaos that they have sown. And it makes me ache to watch it. The verdict, guilty, guilty as charged. But interestingly, you'll notice in verse 35, after God's case against them, they say, oh, I'm innocent. point that out to you because I want you to know that your plea of innocence is nothing new. There is a remedy and it starts when one says not I am innocent but just the opposite. It starts when we say I'm the one, I'm the guilty man And my only plea is for mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, the beauty of the gospel is this. Listen. The very righteousness that God demands of each of us is a righteousness that he is willing to provide in Christ Jesus. So here's what I have to offer you. The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And one of those riches is sanity. An escape from the chaos. Turn. Turn now. Our Father, would you use your word to show and help us understand the setting in which we find ourselves in the 21st century? Would you um, remind us that the only remedy that has ever existed for Israel, for America, or for me is one and the same. The riches of Jesus Christ. Might those riches become oh so beautiful to us this morning. And would you open the eyes of some man or woman that they might embrace those riches for themselves? Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake. In whose name we pray. Amen.